Good evening, and welcome to the April 2020 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Tonight, we continue our coverage of how the coronavirus health emergency is impacting our community with several guests. We'll share some comments from Cleve Jones, a longtime revered LGBT activist from San Francisco and right here in Sonoma County, as well as have a conversation with recently named Interim Communications Director for the LGBTQ Task Force, Kathy Renna. And then assistant editor of the Bay Area Reporter, Matthew Bajeko, will join us and give us an update on how the paper is making its way through this crisis. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, April 26th, 2020. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of April 26th, 2020. In Poland, a gay couple is sewing and distributing rainbow face masks for free, fighting both the coronavirus and homophobia. Just last week, the Parliament of Poland voted to continue considering a law that links homosexuality and pedophilia in an attempt to ban sex education. Cities all over that country have declared themselves, quote, LGBT-free zones, end quote. Prides in the country turned violent last year as right-wing demonstrators attacked marchers. But instead of being silenced, Jacob Wazinski and David Misik saw an opportunity to spread a message. Face masks have been sold out for months, and authority are recommending that people use alternative face masks made out of cotton if they need to go out. With a borrowed sewing machine and a lot of rainbow-colored cloth, the couple and their dressmaker friends made 300 masks and gave them away in the streets in and around Dansk, a city on the Baltic coast of northern Poland. The couple said they're not selling them, only giving them away. They still have fabric left over and are planning to make some more. And in Texas, a gay couple passed away within hours of each other after contracting the coronavirus COVID-19. Both men died in a hospital a few rooms away from each other. Tony Brooks Sy, a city councilor in the San Antonio area, and Philip Sy Brooks, a hair salon owner, lived with Philip's mother. She's also infected and currently quarantined at home. Philip, who worked at the San Antonio Military Medical Center, was the first to seek treatment. He was given medication and sent home to quarantine, but had to be rushed to the hospital days later and put on a ventilator. Tony had also been sick, but didn't want to go to the emergency room. He was found unresponsive in their home by his mother-in-law and rushed to the hospital. Philip's condition improved enough so that he was taken off a ventilator, and he had started talking to medical staff when he suddenly had a heart attack and passed away. Within hours, Tony died as well. The two men will be buried together, and a GoFundMe has been set up to help pay for their funeral expenses. And officials in New York announced this week that for the first time in the city's history, the annual Pride Parade and celebration have been canceled due to the ongoing coronavirus health emergency. It wasn't entirely unexpected as Pride organizations around the world have been canceling planned celebrations previously scheduled throughout this summer. Although this year's 50th anniversary San Francisco Pride celebration has been canceled, there will be online events to commemorate this year's San Francisco Pride and Grand Marshals. The contingent of Grand Marshals announced last week includes Storm Miguel Flores, a trans filmmaker, Len Keller, an African-American lesbian activist and photographer, and Lance Toma, the CEO of the San Francisco Community Health Center. There will also be four commemoration awards, including the Gilbert Baker Pride Founders Award given to Cleve Jones, a gay longtime community activist who founded the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and co-founded the AIDS Memorial Quilt, and Gabby Rivera, a queer author who was the first Latina to write for Marvel Comics. Congratulations to all. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. If you know anything about the LGBT community here in the Bay Area, you know the name Cleve Jones. He began his activism working for Harvey Milk in the 1970s. And among so many things, Cleve is the founder of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and co-creator of the Names Project and AIDS Quilt. He authored a memoir titled When We Rise that was used as the foundation for the ABC miniseries of the same name. I've always admired Cleve, and he inspires me every time I hear him speak. Although usually based in the heart of the Castro, Cleve has a home in Guerneville and is sheltering in place there. A couple of weeks ago, he began speaking out on Facebook, and I want to share his first two thoughts with you tonight. So here's Cleve Jones speaking earlier this month. Hi, everybody. This is Cleve, and it's Easter Sunday. 
If this was a normal time, I would be in Dolores Park with the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence enjoying the Hunky Jesus contest. But these are not normal times, and I'm alone in Guerneville. It's beautiful here, and I'm very grateful to be surrounded by such natural beauty. But it is lonely, and I know that many of you, like me, are feeling a lot of very difficult and complicated emotions. And I'll be honest, I'm feeling sad and lonely and scared. But I'm also feeling really connected to you, to my family, to friends all around the world. And I think that somehow we're going to get through this. I can't imagine yet what it would be like to be living in a normal world. Maybe we never go back to the world we had before. But I think all of us can play a role in shaping the world that is about to come. So I ask all of you to be strong and be kind to each other and to understand the lessons that we need to learn that regrettably were not so well learned by the last time I went through a pandemic. And I want to just say a couple of words about that. Of course, the coronavirus is very different from HIV AIDS, and I'm sure all of you understand those differences. It's not easy to get AIDS. It's very easy to get coronavirus. People who are exposed, if they're going to get sick, get sick very quickly, but many do not get sick at all, whereas with HIV AIDS, the progression was slow, and in almost 100% of the cases without treatment was fatal. I had to wait 15 years after I was diagnosed HIV positive to get effective treatment, and there still is no vaccine. I'm very hopeful that science will move more swiftly with coronavirus, and that in the months and years ahead, we will see effective treatments and eventually a vaccine. But it's important also to remember the mistakes that are being repeated. Both pandemics began with a Republican president in office who did not perceive the gravity of the situation and who failed to act in a timely fashion. Those delays cost the lives of thousands upon thousands of people. We also saw the parallel of the distancing and the othering. There's no such thing as a gay virus. There's no such thing as a Chinese virus that's unscientific and bigoted. It must not be allowed. And finally, and you know, we have to understand the importance of community and working together and to have all of us in this together. And for my people who are part of the LGBTQ community, we who are born into every skin color, every ethnicity, every faith background, every economic class, let's us and all of us try to be the bridge builders, try to find the commonalities, the common ground on which we can stand when we fight back. I think of this particularly when I look at another parallel, the disproportionate impact, the higher rate of infection and deaths among people of color. That's exactly what happened in HIV-AIDS because we dismissed it as a gay disease. That homophobic, unscientific response could be measured in the deaths of tens of millions of heterosexual men and women and their children who died because the one nation on earth that had the resources and the institutions and the advance warning to act failed to do so and failed utterly. We've already seen so many failures in this pandemic. And as I said at the beginning of this, I am sad and I am lonely and I am frightened. And I know that many of you are going through that with me. I haven't touched another human being in 33 days. And I can't wait for hugs and kisses and long walks and nice dinners together. And I can't wait to be back out in the streets with the bullhorns and the banners and the get out the vote campaigns to save our country, and bring our people together and drive that man out of power. So to all of you, stay strong, keep fighting, never ever give up. Happy Easter if you're a believer, happy spring. Much love to all of you from Guerneville, California. Thank you, be well. I'll share another segment with Cleve later in the show. As you heard in the news segment tonight and in prior weeks, Pride celebrations around the world are being canceled. Just this week, the birthplace of Pride, New York, announced it was canceling this year's celebration for the first time in Pride history. But organizers at Interpride, the International Pride Organization, are planning a global Pride celebration on June 27th entirely online. Here to share more about this is new Interim Communications Director for the LGBTQ Task Force, 
as well as for Interpride, Kathy Renna. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to talk to you. Well, it's great to hear your voice. Uh, I think we saw each other last, what, a couple years ago at the Matthew Shepard Foundation event in Denver, right? Yes, I believe that is true. Yeah. Well, you've been so connected with um, the media in our LGBTQ community and beyond. Mm -hmm. We're here tonight to talk about Pride celebrations. Uh, We've covered on the news this month several stories from big cities, obviously, that are uh, delaying or canceling altogether their annual Pride celebration. Here in Sonoma County last month, uh, organizers said they're just going to simply cancel it. They're not even rescheduling. They're, they're canceling this year's Pride celebration that usually takes place the first weekend of June. Um, but you've been involved in monitoring Interpride and this idea of creating a virtual global Pride celebration. So for our listeners who've never heard about Interpride, what exactly is that? So, uh, you know, the best the best way, to, best way to explain Interpride is it's kind of like the Olympic Committee uh, of Prides. You know, they are the organization that is the global uh, association of Prides with hundreds of members around the world. Uh, it's an all-volunteer-run organization and phenomenal people, um, very dedicated to the Pride movement as a, as, a, as a, really as a political and social movement within our global community. Um, and they are partnering with the European Pride Association and others for this virtual um, global Pride 2020, given the fact that we have seen hundreds of Prides around the world either canceling or postponing. Um, I also work with New York City Pride and Capital Pride Alliance in Washington, D.C. They're both clients as well, and, and D.C. has decided to postpone, but we'll be doing some virtual uh, programming and New York is in the process of trying to figure out what they're going to do. So World Pride uh, took place in New York last year, right? Oh, it did. It was my, as yeah. I often say, my amazing responsibility and exhausting <laughs> exhausting spring of uh, 2019 that I will never forget because I didn't sleep very much during it. Uh, it was extraordinary. It was the largest Pride ever. We had 5 million people. Uh, it was it was really just so historic because it was World Pride and it was also the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall uprising. So, you know, that that combination of those two, which was very intentional, obviously, in the planning, just made for honestly, if not the not just the most visible pride ever, but probably the most visible, most covered uh, LGBTQ event in history. Mm-hmm. We had over a thousand credential journalists. Uh, it was it was an extraordinary experience. Um and so ironic that, you know, that happened last year. And then, of course, this year we're planning a virtual pride globally because we find ourselves in the, you know, in the grip of this pandemic. So these World Pride celebrations, I, I had a chance to attend one up in Toronto in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was extraordinary. It was one of the most incredible experiences um, at any pride celebration for me, for sure. Really, really fun. So how... Does Interpride select which city is going to get it next? I mean, I think it's sort of followed in, in every other year rotation, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're not uh, they're not super strict about it. It can happen every um, two to four years. Um, the process is again very similar to the Olympics. Cities put in bids to be the host of World Pride, and so then at the general membership meetings of Interpride, they vote on. Uh, based on the bids and presentations by the various cities. So the next one is in Copenhagen. We're super excited about that and really looking forward to uh, uh, World Pride in Copenhagen, which will also coincide with the Euro games, which are kind of like the gay games in Europe. And so there'll be a lot going on. Hopefully we'll be well past this uh, in terms of the pandemic and and being able to, uh, you know, have events and come together physically. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. it's, it's sort of interesting, the shift, as, you know, as I think about the shift that's taken place around Prides. Uh, obviously, hosting a world, world Pride celebration is going to bring in lots of tourism, lots of revenue, lots of attention uh, on, a, on a city. And when you think back to the sort of genesis of Pride, it certainly wasn't anything that New York was proud of. It, in what sense? Well, in the city in it, general? Going back to Stonewall. You oh, know, sure. The yeah, genesis yeah, well, of where Pride yeah. celebrations came from, right? It, that was not something that New York was particularly proud of. I don't think they appreciated all the 
international attention that that event got. And now here we are celebrating that event in a way where cities are competing for the ability to host worldwide attention. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's obviously a testament to the incredible activism and uh, cultural and social change that we've seen in, over the past five decades. I, I think that, you know, those folks who got out there in 1970, and, and that's one of the ironies, uh, unfortunately, you know, this, this coming year, we won't be able to be able to physically celebrate the 50th anniversary of uh, Pride events in several cities, both New York, Boston, and, and others. So, you know, I, I just think it's really, you know, we've watched the arc of our movement change uh, so much, so quickly, I think. I mean, we have a long way to go still on so many different issues. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It's pretty extraordinary that we were able to bring together 5 million people in New York last year with the full support of not just the city, but the state of New York mm -hmm. to the point where, you know, the state sponsored a, a World Pride Welcome Center uh, a block and a half away from the Stonewall Inn. Uh, the city was extraordinarily supportive in making sure that everyone was safe and that um, we were able to do so many of the events that we did for free. You know, there were events in Central Park that were free. Um, uh, the rally uh, out in front of the Stonewall Inn that had thousands of people, probably eight or 9,000 people was, you know, these, these things were almost all open and you know, free to the public except for uh, the opening ceremony at Barclays, but even the closing ceremony in Times Square, which was extraordinary to have a, a queer uh, world pride closing ceremony right mm. in the middle of Times Square and have it be free and open to the public yeah. was really amazing. That's fantastic. I wish I could yeah. have been there to see that. You know, because I know having gone to San Francisco Pride almost every year um, and then certainly in Toronto, there is nothing like being in a space with millions of other people like you um or not like you or not like you but, but <laughs> that's the part i that, no i'm not joking i mean i don't mean to interrupt but like for me that's the that's the meaning of pride is that right. we're all individuals we have multiple identities and it's the it's the one time of the year and the one place where you can realize that you're part of something so much bigger and frankly so diverse. That's yes. what I love about it more yeah. than anything else. You know what I mean? Right, right. No, I, I was speaking from the, just the standpoint that so many people, especially from rural parts of this country, feel like they're the only one. And so when you step out and see a parade, for example, the, the, where there's just thousands and thousands of people lining the streets, all celebrating who they are, however they look, um, and you feel part of that. It's that experience of being there that is so significant. And so I'm wondering, with a virtual Pride celebration, um, how is that going to how is that going to impact people? Well, I think what we're seeing already is that so many people, thank goodness for the technology we have, are doing their best to connect. Mm -hmm. You know, using Facebook, using Zoom, using uh, you know the technologies and the social media that we have at our disposal. Uh, you know, we're see, we saw over these past few days, you know, virtual satyrs. Um, I'm going to be having a virtual birthday party for myself this, you know, when I turn 55 in a few days. Um, we're adapting. And our community was really, we were early adopters of uh, uh, this kind of the internet, especially in terms of internet technology, because it was a way to find other people like us if we were isolated, whether mm, we're in a true. rural community or whether we live in Manhattan and we have a family that's super rejecting and we're not able to express ourselves as queer people, you can always go on the internet. I mean, I remember when I worked at GLAAD many years ago, we used to always sort of quip that, you know, the internet was such a blessing because it was the one place you could be openly closeted. Like you could, you know, you could find information, <laughs> you could connect with other people and you could do it anonymously and safely. Right. Right. Um, you know, and then we're now in a world where that's only been, um, that's only been amplified. So, you know, yes, it will be different. It, it won't be the same. It won't be the same as being in a sea of people. And I mean, there's really nothing like it as someone who has experienced prides, uh, small and prides, you know, of historic proportions with millions of people. Um, there's always that feeling of connection with the people that you see, but, you know, we have to adapt. We have to deal with the, the hand we've been dealt, you know? Right. And so, I think this virtual pride will actually give us an opportunity to do some things that we don't 
often get to do when we do physical pride. So for example, I know that they're still, you know, just in the beginnings of working on the programming and how it's going to be structured and everything else for this, uh, you know, Global Pride 2020. But one of the things that's been a priority from the start is that we're going to be able to uplift and make visible globally some of the places that, that have really tremendous courage in putting together pride events, whether it's in Poland or whether it's in, uh, you know, uh, the rural south of the United States, uh, whether it's in Uganda, um, you know, it's going to be a chance for us to connect globally in an accessible way. I mean, World mm. Pride was huge and wonderful in New York, but you had to be able to get to New York and not right. everybody has that ability. So right. in a way, we're making this uh, a World Pride, as I like to say, World Pride in every sense of the word, because it will be accessible to everyone in the world. You know, that's a great point. Uh, not everybody has the ability to get to a big event like that, or even has the ability to be out enough to get to a local event. Also um, true. And so attending virtually may be um, an awesome, ideal option for people to celebrate. And I love what you said about being able to look at pride globally, because it is very different in so many different countries. It's dangerous in some countries to even talk about it. Um, so tell us what you know about how this is going to come together. I mean, what, what's, what's it going to look like so far? Well, I mean, right now we've had hundreds of prides get in touch and say they want to participate in some way. So, you know, it, it's, it's in process. They're going to be hiring someone to basically produce this as an event. But I think the, the overall vision is really kind of for those of those of us who watch, uh, say, for example, CNN on New Year's Eve, like, you know, they start by showing the fireworks in Australia and then they go, mm -hmm. they move west through the time zones. I think it's going to be like that. We're going to start, you know, out in the in the southeastern hemispheres and then move west um, and be able to provide whether, you know, some of this will be obviously live programming, uh, you know, folks who are moving, moving it along over the course of 24 hours. And then we'll also have the opportunity to, you know, have whether it's a taped performance or, you know, a comments or a speech by uh, LGBTQ advocates. Um, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be just like pride in that sense. It will be a mix of things. I mean, pride is to me like a Rorschach test, like it's something different for everyone. And, and you know, for some folks, it is an extremely political event. And I'm one of those people. And I, I for me, it's important that we make a statement as a visible diverse community every year uh, for lots of reasons. This year, in particular, in the US, it's a huge election year. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it's important for so many people for that reason globally. I mean, it, it is, as you say, not only dangerous, it could be like life threatening to, to be out. It's illegal uh, to be LGBTQ in many countries uh, in the world. And so there's that piece of it. And then there's also the celebratory piece. You know, there's no reason why we cannot uh, celebrate. And I, when I say celebrate, to me, it's about celebrating our resilience. You know, we're still here, we're still queer. And, and now, you know, Lady Gaga is going to, you know, give us a message and sing, sing a song for us, right? Um, I think that the idea of, of all of those different things happening online over the course of 24-hour period on June 27th is going to be pretty amazing. So that is going to be the day, June 27th, which is sort yeah. of the, the traditional uh, day when, when Pride is acknowledged, uh, celebrates mm -hmm. the, the day of the, the Stonewall riots, and uh, it's the weekend typically when San Francisco here in the Bay Area would host their Pride. So this will be a 24-hour event that people would go online to watch, I would assume. Um, yes. And, and I'm guessing that it's going to probably get the attention of some uh, television network broadcasting folks as well. Are you seeing that? Well, we, we're just starting to do the outreach, but certainly we need a platform for it. Just a, you know, a, a literally a platform to, to broadcast this. But I, yes, I do think that there'll be a lot of media attention. I mean, when I put out the press release last week for Enterprise, just announcing this, uh, you know, we were getting a lot of calls about the number of Pride celebrations that were being postponed or canceled. So, you know, what were we going to do in June? And that's how this idea was born, essentially, between Enterprise, IPOA, and the other um, sort of globally regional organizations, you know, that work with Prides in their part of the world. So it's mm -hmm. a real coalition effort. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of major 
prides like San Francisco, New York, UK, Hong Kong, um, you know, uh, uh, European prides. Um, I think they're, if, even if they coincide with that same weekend, um, they'll participate in some way. And the other thing is that this is not, you know, uh, this doesn't mean that there won't be other things happening throughout the month of June, that individual prides, I know that the Capital Pride Alliance and New York City Pride, you know, we'll be talking about how can we do our own virtual things, you know, for our own local communities um, over the course of May and June. I mean, Capital Pride does half a dozen different prides before it culminates in the, the really the right. biggest, you know, inclusive, largest Capital Pride parade and festival, which is about 400,000 people. I mean, they put on Trans Pride, uh, Silver Pride for seniors, uh, API Pride. Uh, they work closely with the organization that puts together Black Pride. So I think we're going to see a lot of other virtual programming as well. And, and again, it is part of the reason for having it towards the end of the month is, is because it coincides with the Stonewall anniversary, but also because it's really going to be a wonderful culmination of Pride Month. Right. I, I'm loving the idea. Um, when I first heard about it and was thinking about it, I thought, mm, okay, I wonder really how successful something like this would be. I actually think this has the possibility of doing more than a, an in-person pride would do in one central big place like New York. I think this is going to give an opportunity for such an amazing visibility and access to pride to more people uh, than maybe we've ever been able to do even with small local hometown prides. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I think uh, it's one of the things I love about our community is that we are a resilient, creative bunch. And if you present us with a, uh, a challenge, and in this case, a pandemic, which unfortunately we have some experience in, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, we, we know, we we know about this. We respond. We come together and we're here for each other and we respond. And I'm, I'm really thrilled. I'm excited to see what uh, it turns into. It's going to be a, a tremendous effort by um, a lot of people. And we welcome anyone who's interested in getting involved to go to the globalpride2020.org site uh, or to the Facebook page and letting us know that whether you want to attend simply or if you want to uh, contribute in some way, that would be great. Well, I will definitely do that on behalf of Outbeat Radio and KRCB. And maybe we'll, we can talk about how our station can get involved in helping to carry this uh, and make it cool. accessible for folks. Absolutely. Um, I, I just think it's, I think it's really, really an amazing idea. Uh, let's shift a bit. Uh, you work with nonprofits and LGBT organizations of all kinds. Mm -hmm. uh, let's start with the LGBTQ organizations and nonprofits. I'm really worried about their survival in all of this. Uh, you know, the, the the financial devastation that is coming from this epidemic is not even not even realized yet. Uh, and nonprofits survive based on the donated dollars that are typically extra dollars that folks have. I mean, right. what are you what are you thinking about all of this and and its impact? Well, I think that the organizations, and I work with the National LGBTQ Task Force, um, you know, with Interpride and and New York, like there's so many different organizations, and I'm in touch with so many because they're past clients and their colleagues, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I I don't I see myself as a you know, as my partner jokes, you can take the girl out of glad, but you can't take the glad out of the girl. Like I'll help anybody, you know, when they really need the help. And I think that's actually what I've seen is a real pulling together. And in the short term, yes. Um, you know, everyone's working virtually. There are some real, you know, challenges. You'll probably notice that your inbox has far fewer uh, emails asking for money. And that's because we're in the middle of a crisis. Um, right. In fact, I was just on a call with some folks from the task force and you know, the discussion was not about how do we raise money for the task force. It was about how do we support the organizations that by necessity of the, 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 the people they serve needing to continue to do their work now and how can we help them? So whether it's like, for example, the Ali Frenet Center here in New York City, they work with homeless LGBTQ youth. They've unfortunately had to shut down their 24-hour drop-in center. Mm. Um, and these kids are on the streets and they are really, really at risk. And so they have been able to uh, start providing uh, at least meals and hygiene supplies and, and you know, uh, virtual services in terms of counseling, um, you know, at, at their B. Arthur house and, you know, have to follow all the social distancing guidelines, but are doing everything they can to provide for these young people who are in, you know, really one of the most vulnerable positions you can be in, mm -hmm. in this pandemic. 
Uh, same with Sage. Say, I love Sage. I mean, Sage has affiliates all over the country, and you know, one of the most wonderful programs that they have are this is Sage Connect, um, and they also have a, a friendly visitors program where where folks would visit isolated LGBTQ elders. I mean, obviously, with with the pandemic, you can't do it the way you used to, but they are expanding and providing the service for Sage Connect which you know means something very different it can mean you know dropping medications at someone's doorstep because they should not be going out right. um it can mean helping um a senior learn how to use facetime so they can stay connected with their friends and family and and if, if they don't have um you know a large social network someone from sage volunteers will check in on them and talk to them and help them feel less isolated you know so i think we're really focused on that in the short term. Um, and I think in the longer term, there's just, we're going to have to see what the economic impact is. And we're going to all probably have to change the way we live and work in some ways. And that's going to, you know, that's going to be something that uh, we'll address as it happens. But yeah, absolutely. The, I think that, you know, the, the economic uh, impact of this is going to be pretty catastrophic across the board. You know, whether it's marginalized folks, lower income folks, nonprofits, it's really going to be uh, it's going to be something to, to pull us out of this hole. Yeah. Well, I like what, why I will say what Judy Shepard and Dennis Shepard say every single time they stand up in front of a group, which is vote. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that's so important. Vote, 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 vote. And <laughs> vote and fill out that census form. It's yes, so, it's yeah, so working critical. on that. That's another important thing. And you got no excuse because you're sitting at home. So exactly, like <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, you're, you made a point a few minutes ago about the fact that this is not our first rodeo, so to speak, with a pandemic. Um, and in the early days of the AIDS crisis, it was really about volunteers um, and people giving of their time and their service, uh, absent of money to help mm -hmm. care for others that made this all happen. And I suspect that our community would be one of those that will lead the way again in, in doing that and helping local nonprofits by reaching out and saying, hey, I've got some time. What can I give you for free? I may not be able to give you $5 or $10, but what can I do to help you right. uh, with my time? Talk well, about the, and I think ahead. we can teach lessons about how to deal with a government that is not responsive to the needs. I mean, this is a very different kind of situation. It's a different kind of virus. And, um, you know, at the, at the time in the early days of AIDS, uh, you know, the gay men and IV drug abusers were, you know, some of the most marginalized people in, uh, in our culture. I think if you look at the, you know, the, the influence that the LGBT community has now, we can definitely teach, uh, teach the larger public a lot. I mean, there are several articles. There was one in the New York Times, um, that I just read about talking to veteran AIDS activists about the sort of the similarities and comparisons and the differences between the AIDS pandemic and the mm -hmm. COVID-19 pandemic. And, and, you know, all of them, you know, talked about how we do have a lot to teach people because you're right. I mean, we dropped everything and all of us, you know, lesbians rushed to the sides of yep. their gay male friends and chosen family to care for them because nobody else would. Right. Um, this is a little different situation, but you know, government inaction is certainly contributing and we need to, um, we need to raise our voices around that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Kathy, it's been great talking with you and I wish you and your family uh, good health and safety as we get through this. Thanks for all the work you're doing and let's stay in touch about the global pride celebration. Absolutely. Great to talk to you. And I, I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. That was Kathy Renna, a managing partner of Target Q and the new interim communications director of the LGBTQ task force. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth on KRCB-FM Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. Now here's Cleve Jones with his most recent message from Guerneville. Hi, everyone. This is Cleve speaking with you from Guerneville, California, where I've been sheltering in place since March 8th. I came here after a visit to Detroit, Michigan, and when I was returning, I noticed that there were, at that time, no reported cases of COVID-19 in Detroit or anywhere in the state of Michigan. Today, we know that Michigan is one of the hot spots in the country, and Detroit in particular has suffered a great number of cases and fatalities. This underscores to me one of the important parallels between the 
previous pandemic I endured, HIV AIDS, and the current pandemic. I spoke about this a bit last week, and I want to reflect about a little bit more about that right now. One of the most crucial parallels is the need for testing. And we are failing on this. We're failing at the federal level, the state, and the local level. Without testing, we can't track the disease. We can't know what we're really dealing with. We can't encourage people to maintain the rigorous changes in behavior that we are asking of them. Nor can we understand fully whether exposure to the virus and the presence of antibodies confers immunity. This was critically important in the HIV AIDS pandemic, and it's just as important today. So one of the things I'm asking all of my friends to do is to contact your local state and federal representatives and demand mass testing. The president keeps saying that testing is available to anyone who wants it, and every time he says it, it's not true. There's no way we can fight this disease without more testing. So I implore all of you to pay attention to this and act up, fight back, and demand testing for everyone. I want to bring up another sad parallel, which I touched on last week, is the increasingly evident disparity. The racial disparity, the income disparity, the outcomes are obvious and they're tragic. We know that as many times as we want to say we're all in this together, we really aren't because some of us are suffering a great deal more than others. I work for a labor union called Unite Here. We represent about 300,000 hospitality workers throughout the United States and Canada. Think of the people that clean your rooms when you stay in the hotels, the workers on the strip in Vegas, the folks that prepare your food for airplanes, the people that work in the food carts in the airports, mostly immigrants, mostly women. Over 90% of our members have already been laid off. And to make matters even worse, in the middle of a health crisis, they've lost their health insurance. Now, last, last week when I posted, uh, I got a little pushback from some who said I was politicizing this pandemic. Well, tell me, what part of this pandemic isn't political? We need to keep our eyes on open and pay attention to what's happening because it's very frightening. Now, I'm out here alone in a beautiful place, and I'm grateful for that. I could use a haircut. I could certainly use some hugs. But I feel a deep fear, the kind of fear that sits in my belly and in my chest, keeps me awake at night. Fear for what's happening to this country and this world. We must be politically engaged. We must learn that lesson from the HIV pandemic. Act up, fight back. Don't ever think for a minute that you don't have an important role to play in winning this horrible fight. I'm counting on you. I know many of you well, some of you I've never met, but I know that collectively we have the power to get this done. So I'm sending you my love, my best wishes for your health, for your friends, for your families, for all of us who must stand together at this critical time in the history of our country and our planet. Much love to all of you from Guerneville. Thank you. Thank you, Cleve. And keep inspiring and motivating us with your messages and words from Guerneville. Earlier this month, we reported that our news partner, the Bay Area Reporter, was struggling from a drastic and sudden loss of business advertising dollars. This caused the historic paper to lay off a number of its writers. So last week, I had a chance to catch up with assistant editor of the Bay Area Reporter, Matthew Bajaco. Well, Matthew, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, we appreciate uh, you taking the time. I know this is a very busy time for you, trying to hold things together at the Bay Area Porter. Uh, but before we get talking about the paper, give us a sense of what life's been like for you in San Francisco during this emergency. Uh, well, upside down is uh, probably the nicest way to describe it. <laughs> uh, I think our city has been kind of at the forefront of this since late February. Um, we were one of the first cities to start restricting um, events uh, larger than 100 people. Then it went down to 50. And then obviously, you know, we instituted the shelter in place order and uh, our city instructed non-essential businesses to close in early March. Um, 
And it was it was interesting because I'm I'm initially from New England, and I have family the the East Coast now from Maine down to Florida, and you know bef before um, well in early March when I would talk with them they were it was still life was normal mm -hmm. in, in most of the states and uh, right up until um, Easter my parents live in South Carolina um, their state was you know not really doing much to limit uh and and order people to stay home so so i had this weird experience of seeing firsthand how life had been altered you know for for myself my coworkers, you know our our city and at the same time talking with family and friends who were still kind of you know their life was was a, was a little bit still normal it's kind of an interesting experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're they're in it now, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So I've seen pictures of, you know, windows boarded up and murals being painted on the plywood that's covering those windows in the Castro. Uh, I'm assuming you're getting out to walk a little bit. What's it like? Um, it's, it's strange. Uh, I actually... Um, to limit having to take the bus, I've been walking home from work. Uh, and um, most days I leave either like at six o'clock or four in the afternoon. And um, there are definitely people out on the streets. It's it's not deserted, um, but there's there's just an odd sense in, in the air. And um, as things have progressed, you, you see more and more people um, like last week had masks on, mm -hmm. um, and I'm working from home today. It's, it's a Monday. So I'll be interesting to see what it's like tomorrow. And on Wednesday, now that the, the order has been put into effect that you're supposed to always have a mask on while you're in public settings. And even though you're not supposed to be, you, you know, you don't have to have it on when you're like jogging or exercising, um, a lot of people do. And uh, I certainly, um, I, you know, I'm exercising and, and I'm walking, but I had my mask on. Well, I was using a scarf. Uh, I, our masks, we finally got in the mail that we had ordered. Um, but uh, just out of a precaution, you know, during the busy kind of commercial stretches of Market Street, and uh, Castor Street, I would have my scarf on. And then once I got into the more um, residential areas of the neighborhood, um, I would kind of take it off of my face, but I'd still have it in case I encountered somebody on the sidewalk mm -hmm. and then I would put it back on. And, and most people are doing the social distancing. It's not really been that, that big of a, of a problem. And, you know, people will kind of either if they're jogging, jog out onto the street or, or people will walk around a car and let you have the sidewalk, or I've done that. If it's like a, a family or or a sure. parent with kids in a stroller, um, so I, you know, it's I know now. You know, we're hearing news reports about people protesting these orders, but it 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 you don't really get the sense of that here in San Francisco. I think people here really understand why what our health officials and city leaders are asking us to do is, is important. Right. And it, it sort of feels like the wearing of masks now is really a, a training for the next step, which is a sort of a relaxing of the shelter in place orders is, is my guess. Yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that. Um, the thing about the Castro too, is it was, it was, changing by the moment. So, you know, certain businesses were, were um, at the start, were, were changing their hours. And also, you know, the, the big thing with the Castro is the, is the gay nightlife. So right. early, earlier in March, when the order was instituted for a hundred or more, some bars closed immediately. Like my coworker happened to be at a bar in the Castro that Friday evening and they shut their bar down like as soon as the the order was issued that was it other bars stayed open and just started limiting the number of people who could go in 
Mm-hmm. But then on Sunday, they upped the order again to like 50 people or more you couldn't have. And then that that kind of really precipitated, you know, nightlife throughout the city, whether it was gay bars or street bars, all pretty much closed from there on out. Yeah, and you, then, can, you um, can't make a living with 50 people. No, you can't. And, uh, you know, they did work to allow them to... Um, sell drinks from the door and i know certain certain bars are doing that but um you know almost immediately people in our our nightlife industry started fundraising to help the employees of the bars uh make ends meet during this time and um a lot of uh, entertainers whether it be drag queens or djs or musicians you know early on started doing um virtual shows online and, and asking people to tip them through Venmo or um, another way. And, um, you know, the thing also about the Castro, if you think about it, it's really, it's it's going to be a challenge to, to open any of the businesses there, whether it's a restaurant, a store, or a nightclub, because the spaces themselves are so small to begin with. Right. You know, we live in a packed neighborhood in the Castro or where I I live over on the other side of the hill in Noe Valley and our restaurants and stores in our neighborhood kind of have the same problem where they don't have a lot of space, you know? Um, So our neighborhood wine store that we we go to um, a couple of weekends ago when I stopped by, they had instituted a policy where you had to wait at the door to to be let in and the like like you've probably seen at at more uh, mainstream grocery stores the owner had put up a plastic shield to help protect him and his house at the register and uh, it was a very different experience i mean you you know we would always go in there and say hi we'd bring our dog and this time i was by myself i had a mask on and you kind of got the sense that he just wanted you to get in and get out, you know, sure, um, and not really linger and and socialize like like normally we would do. Hmm. Well, you're right. I think it is going to be a very slow restart because, uh, as you mentioned, those spaces are all very small. There's nothing there that's 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 big, and of course, it's the crowds that bring in the money and enable to, mm-hmm. to keep the lights on. Yeah. So let's talk about the Bay Area Reporter. I mean, that newspaper's been around for going on four plus decades you've covered the the gay yeah, life 1971 in, yeah i mean you've covered gay life in the bay area the north bay and throughout and much of that is funded by advertisers from these businesses that we've just talked about that are closed so to talk about the impact on the paper yeah the impact was was pretty instantaneous because a lot of our advertising right now is from nightlife venues, uh, a, a local uh, casino, um, museums, uh, art, arts institutions, and um, stores, and none of them can be open. So there's really no need for them to advertise. And uh, as soon as you know, my publisher realized what was going to be confronting the paper he had to make some very difficult decisions and we had to let go two of our full-time staff people um Mm. we've discontinued several contributing columnists and really limited the amount of uh freelancers that we can employ right now um and already because of uh, uh, the law that had been enacted last year here in California called AB5 that really restricted um, the amount of freelancers papers like ours could use, they had already been kind of talking with the freelancers that, that you know, the, the law says you can only do 35 pieces now a year uh, before triggering becoming a full-time employee, which... For a small community-based newspaper, that that's just not going to work for right. for our business model. So I think the the freelancers already were bracing for a difficult year because of that law, and um, and now you know we've had to to let them know that we just can't afford to have them contributing as much right now. 
Hmm. Uh, and so the rest of the staff, we've, we've been picking up our pace. Um, normally we'll file, you know, four to five stories, one of which for me is an online column that I always do on Mondays. Um, and now we're probably doing um, six to eight stories at least every week because uh, the news hasn't stopped. Right. And, and so how many people are actually still writing? Um, well, we have two news assistant news editors who always account for the bulk of uh, the stories. Um, so that's myself and, and my, my colleague. And then we still do have several freelancers that we were using on the news desk. Um, and then our arts is all freelance. Uh, but in their case, it's not really a matter of, of cutting back their writing. There's nothing for them to write about because right. there are no performances to review or, or movies to review right now. And so, um, you know, we're, we're, we're hoping that, that things will get back to a, a more normal um, atmosphere um, come July. Boy, that's that's some time to to sweat it out, though, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, I mean the big thing to remind to keep in mind for for LGBT newspapers across the country is our biggest month is usually Pride Month in right. June, and I know for us that is going to be really painful um, if people decide not to take out you know special pride ads because there won't be an actual gathering it'll just be a virtual pride this year wow. and so that's another huge economic hit to not only our paper but to you know lgbt papers across the country well you know one of the things that always strikes me about the barry reporter is it has the appearance of being a very big major publication from the standpoint of the print editions are always available to grab out of the stand. You have a beautiful website. You have an app. It looks like a huge organization. And what I'm hearing from you is that there are just a few people here that are holding these threads together. Well, that's been true for for a long time with, with the gay papers. You yeah. know, I mean, they've always been kind of uh, small businesses uh, and, and small newsrooms that do a, a lot. Uh, um, more than people might imagine. Well, it's such a valuable resource. You know, teaching LGBT studies, I was re referencing just recently the amazing archive that the GLBT Historical Society uh, assembled with all of the, the Barrier Porter publications going back to the beginning. And you have captured and recorded history. It's such a valuable resource for history, but also, of course, for news today. We've got to keep this thing going. And so what can the community do to help? Well, the paper a couple of weeks ago launched an Indiegogo campaign uh, with the goal of raising $30,000 to help us maintain, you know, the, the bare expenses uh, for the next couple of months. Um, because hopefully, you know, advertising will um, come back. And so I would highly recommend that if people can afford to do so, uh, they support our campaign or that of their local LGBT paper, because almost every single um, major LGBT paper in the country is fundraising right now because they're all experiencing, you know, the same conditions we are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also if... If you work at a company that that can afford to advertise, you know, suggest that this is a good time to support community organizations like the Bay Area Reporter or, or other, you know, community papers in in your community because um, they're all hurting right now. Uh, and um, also, continue to be a reader. Uh, you know, we're posting all of. Um, not only the, the the stories you would normally find in the print edition, but every day we're posting special online only stories about breaking news and uh, what's still going on uh, in the community as far as impacts because of the novel coronavirus. Um, and also you can, um, for our paper at least, we if you're unable to leave your house to go pick up the paper, 
Um, on my Facebook, I've been sharing the link to download the PDF version of the paper. So at least, you know, people who are regular readers can, can see the paper from the front page to the back cover at, at home on their, you know, their computer or, or iPad. Fantastic. It's really quite a gift. And so where can people go to contribute? Uh, so if they go to our um, website at ebar.com, they'll find a link uh, to the Indiegogo campaign. Perfect. And if you've never taken the opportunity to read the Bay Area Reporter, if you're living up here in the North Bay and it's just not ever been on your radar, this is a perfect opportunity. And you know, you're so right. It is the source for information about our amazing community from San Francisco all around the Bay Area through the North Bay. So use this use this chance to get in and check it out and then make a contribution. And if you missed that website, we will put it on our own website at OutBeatNews.com. We've been talking with Matthew Bajeko, who's the assistant editor of the Bay Area Reporter. Matthew, thanks so much for spending time with us. Stay safe and stay healthy. You too, Greg, and thanks for letting me uh, talk about uh, the paper and uh, what we're experiencing. And that wraps up our hour. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on Radio 91. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. Podcasts of our programs are available for on-demand play on our website at OutbeatNews.com and on iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all month long. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know. Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains, we can walk it out and move mountains. We are Radio 91 KRCB-FM Windsor and K215CQ Santa Rosa, the service of Northern California Public Media. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next. <laughs>